Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Mark Seliger, a guy I've been lucky enough to be around a bunch of different times over a number of years, and we've gotten to work together a little bit. He is, without a doubt, the preeminent portrait photographer, uh, although that is not the limit of his work. He tells incredible stories in a single frame. He's also directed videos, uh, many of your favorite Rolling Stone covers, Vanity Fair covers, uh, pictures of incredible world leaders, statespeople have been taken by Mark. It is a an incredibly hard business and hard art form in which to distinguish yourself in a way that the world knows who you are, that people outside of a very tiny little group knows who you are. Um, you know, we can talk about people like Annie Leibovitz and Bruce Weber, but that's, you know, most Americans don't really know beyond that. And Mark, you've entered for and, and been in for a long time in, in a, a world that is really rarefied and you're, you know, you're a great artist and we share many close mutual friends and, uh, you know, the work you did, you got the great cameo in Billions and then the work you did in the last two seasons posters was fantastic. And, uh, thanks for, thanks for being here to talk a bit, man. Thanks, Brian. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of this and, uh, always enjoy our collaboration. So this is a treat. Man, you know, I had these first couple questions I wanted to ask you, and then I realized that you, on your own Instagram, posed these questions that were unbelievably similar to what I'd written down, but I'm going to ask it to you in your own language. You were um, paying tribute to a friend of yours who'd passed on, Ed Keating, and, and you wrote at the end of this, evolving with my work has been an important aspect of maintaining my interest as a photographer. Seeing this old photo makes me think and wonder, what was the spark that drove my younger self? And so the two questions that I take from that are, are one, yeah, what was it that gave you the dream and the notion that if you worked with rigor, you could achieve it? Like, what was that spark? But, but I'm, I'm also equally interested in how you maintain that spark as a mature artist. But why don't we start with... What you've, how you've answered that, because you asked that question to yourself a month ago. So I wonder if you've had time to think about it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, kind of re rewinding back to the, to the younger me, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's obviously cathartic. Uh, it's important. It has kept, I think, my passion uh, in overdrive, right? So um, that person is to me as the same person uh, I am today. And that's just evolution, right? Like the, the idea that there's a curiosity that each time I go out and do it, you know, I have the same uh, uh, interest, the same um, aspect. I call it kind of falling in love with your subjects, uh, whether it's uh, an artist or a, uh, a subject that you have similar tastes or similar, um, you know, just uh, interests, or it's somebody that you're just curious about. And so I try to do a lot of research on the front end so that when I go in and I'm, I'm prepped, um, whether I listen to their music or whether I've seen their movies, I know something about them. So that, that curiosity really uh, keeps the conversation going and makes the the session, I think, very special. And, and the way I view the photograph is it's, it's my opportunity to do something that somebody else has not done, though I don't, yeah. I don't you know, 
scan over, you know, the past work, I try to keep it very original. And the originality is what drove me from the very beginning. It was like the ability of like going into a magazine and working with them and having their trust to create something that, you know, was going to be on the printed page or it was going to live in some printed manner that felt unique. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I want to get into the tactical strategic part of, and I, uh, you know, coming in with a plan, but staying open. I think it's super valuable for people in all sorts of areas, um, any artistic endeavor. And I've heard you talk about that stuff before, but you know, I see kind of a kinship in your journey and your ability to become completely, to have this immersive life where leading with your curiosity, you were able to um, immerse yourself in this world you kind of dreamed of on some level. And I see a kinship to Cameron Crowe's character in Almost Famous in a way, uh, <laughs> you know, in and, and, and when I think about that kid in that movie as a way to sort of analog over, I, I wonder if your life in Texas, what it was a kid, I, I, we can talk in a granular way about the journey, but more inside of you, what do you think was drawing you to, to, to New York and was drawing you to a world of, of artists? And, and I guess, what made you think it was possible, like, that you could get on the bus and stay on the bus, you know? Yeah. I, it's funny because, um, you know, we all, you know, gr growing up in Texas, I, I was fortunate to have two older brothers that, you know, gave me a lot of my uh, my early legs in terms of pop culture. And so, um, you know, over the years when I was, you know, making my own choices, I, you know, I, I had my own heroes. And, uh, yes. and looking at like a, a, a magazine like Rolling Stone or looking at, um, you know, some of the other fanzines that, you know, we stuck our nose into when we were kids. I just thought that was probably be that would probably be the coolest job you could ever have. Right. I never, ever expected that that was going to become my full time job for 10 years. Right. So when I came, so when I came to New York, it was really specifically to intern or to apprentice with photographers that, um, you know, I, I was, you know, I held pretty high on the ladder. I ended up not working for a lot of them, but, but working with a couple of people that I just found their humanity was really special. And they had a way of, um, of, of dealing with very difficult situations in such a, a, uh, a nimble way. And that's really where I got uh, a, a kind of a, a different experience than when I was assisting in Texas. That drove me to, to kind of understanding the, the theory of being a chameleon. And you talk about almost famous. And the chameleon aspect became more, more hyper uh, active in me, uh, but it was always part of my nature, you know, really? always, always a listener. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of, uh, prided myself in a, in a good sense of humor. I like to laugh with people. I, I enjoy, you know, good, dumb humor, but I also liked, uh, in photography to, to put an idea first. And that's what I learned early on in, uh, um, in college. I took a graphic arts class and I also 
focused on documentary, but in the graphic arts class, I wasn't much of a topographer. I could do a little bit of, of, of that work, but I would team up with really great illustrators and really great designers, and we would create campaigns. And a gentleman by the name of Rob Lawton was, was teaching the class. He was a, at that time, he was a very big ad man in, in Dallas. So idea came first, and that is what I took with me when I started to shoot on my own. That led to um, how do I get into magazines like Rolling Stone or Interview or any of the other ones that were, you know, kind of in the golden age of, of, of the editorial. So the, 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 the hole in the, you know, if we think about football, the hole in the, in the field right there was color. Nobody was really good at shooting color. And the type of materials that they were using for, you know, like Rolling Stone and even Interview was this kind of scrappy newsprint. So your color had to be almost hyper color. Your, the, the technical aspect of it had to be really, really good. You had to use the best materials in order to be able to take, you know, that kind of scrappy paper and make it really glossy. Yes. And then over the years when I was working for Rolling Stone, they changed the paper, they changed the stock, and they really kind of pushed the, you know, the, the quality of it. It was a bi-weekly, so it came out every two weeks. Well, and obviously, that, yeah, I was a, I mean, I never missed an issue of Rolling Stone until they'd really yeah. changed 10 years ago, you know, or whatever they really gave up on it, kind of. But all through your period of time, I was obsessed, obviously, right? Yeah, so, yeah they made it smaller. But, but go ahead, keep going. So it was it was biweekly, and you 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 realized because I, it's funny. I've read all these like things you've said over time, and you always talk about well, I got hired first in this little like occasional shoots for Rolling Stone, and that's it. Almost sounds like the way I've heard you say it in the past, where it's been written up, like it's something that just kind of happened to you. But that's not the way the world works. It didn't just happen to you. So keep going. Like, doesn't just happen. Like, oh, there's a Rolling Stone. Like, that was the single most <laughs> desired gig for people who love photography yeah. and music and culture. It was the very fucking epicenter of yeah. the culture. Like, Saturday Night Live in television, Rolling Stone magazine, which yeah. is hard to picture for people now. But it was at the, like, uh, the New Yorker was at the center of one thing. But Rolling Stone yeah. was at the center of, like, the cutting edge of mass culture, mass pop culture. How did you, being an outsider, get your first couple of assignments at Rolling Stone? What, what happened? What work did you show them? How did you target it? Like, who were you? Like, you're now, you know, you live this, you're very, you know, one, also one of the highest paid photographers in the world. But at the time, there's no way you could have thought about, oh, I'm going to become rich doing this. It was, so, no, so who no. were you in that moment in New York? And how did you make that happen? Well, I was, you know, it was funny because I never thought that I would, you know, financially be secure in photography. Right. But I always felt as if I had the opportunity to do something that I love doing every day, that I'd be fine. Right. I, yes. would, I would never, yes. I would never, I would never like, I, I would always be able to buy a bagel with a schmear. Yes, dude. I, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, of course. Me, and that was, and that was, uh, so I started out immediately after like deciding I was never going to assist again. I sat at home. I lived on 104th Street in between Broadway and Amsterdam in a very, uh, 
you know, in a very uh, questionable neighborhood. Uh, and I would just deliver my portfolio to every magazine that I thought would possibly want to look at it. Everything from Forbes magazine, Esquire, GQ, Rolling Stone, Interview. And you would drop them off on a drop-off day, which was usually like a Tuesday or Wednesday, and then you would get the portfolio back. And I remember the, one of the first places I dropped it off was the Avenue Magazine. And uh, the writer, Michael Schneerson, he, he, I've actually confronted him with this before, and, 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 and he just kind of held his head. He sent me back a note when I picked up my portfolio and said, Mark, thank you so much for dropping your portfolio off. However, I really don't see any personal style or signature on this. Good luck. Wow. So, but I thanked him for that. I said, thank you for telling me that because you gave me an absolute pure, you know, good personal opinion that made me think, okay, how can I do better? And it was critical. valuable, in, valuable, in so valuable, dude. That's so valuable yeah. that that person. Yeah, and I and I and I when I told him that, I he he went, God, I'm such an asshole. And I said, No, you were being honest because you know photography and art is subjective, right? And if you weren't feeling it, uh, feeling it, then. I wanted to do something that really made you feel it. And I ended up working for Avenue a ton. They were actually the first magazine that gave me um, uh, kind of a real assignment in Europe. And I went to mm -hmm. photograph uh, a bunch of amazing shoe designers like Roger Vivier and Maude Frazan and Christian Lacroix in, um, in Paris. And it was a really like a wonderful assignment. But then I went on to work with a lot of business magazines. So business magazines in the 80s, they wanted to turn all their executives into rock stars. Like they noticed right. like, okay, how do we make fortune and Forbes and business week look cool? So sure. I provided, I provided like that kind of hyper color. I would get executives to do kind of amazing things that made them look like, you know, you would have, is that Keith Richards? No. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the CEO of uh, Buick or whatever. So um, the, the, the the evolution of that turned into working for a magazine in the in the mid 80s late 80s called Manhattan Inc. Now Manhattan Inc was a very specific magazine in the business world that had very good writers, very unusual articles and they really focused on photography. And so they gave me a break. John Jane Clark was one of the first editors gave me a break over there and she and I went on to do a bunch of covers and then I'd already been sending my work to Lori Kutakfield at Rolling Stone, but I had gotten no responses. I didn't even get a, like a hate letter. Wait, I got to ask one question because when you're, so you're, you're on, on 104th street, occasionally walking up to Essa bagel, I mean, to absolute bagels on 108th, yeah. which is like the best bagel place. But yes, it was very different. Now that neighborhood's amazing, but back then it was um, probably different. But like, and I was having, and I was, and I was definitely like having a, a carb over, uh, carb overload at VNT Pizza. Of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> How? But here, here's the question: like, um, to get to this place where you get this gig, like, okay, you're going around on Tuesday and Wednesday. You have one copy of your portfolio, or do you have two copies of two. printed out for two copies of your two. portfolio? And there's no internet, so you're not like they're not. 
there's not a website you can go to where they're like, come on Tuesday. Like you have to find out about this. And are you just trudging around the city? Are you walking, taking the subway with your portfolios and oh, yeah. hot days and just like dropping them with some receptionist out front or like what? That's a seems yeah, like yeah, very demoralizing. How are you earning your living, yeah. man? Well, you know, I, I, I had, uh, I had done the same thing where I would just cold call photographers when I wanted to assist. So I would, I, I used to live in uh, Brooklyn at the very first, first drop off in New York city, which I'd never been to before. My brother is Lubavitch and he lived in crown Heights. And wow. so he let me, he let me crash it in, uh, in his basement apartment with a couple other yeshiva buckers. And, uh, and I would go into the city and I would just start dropping dimes or quarters into the phone booth and calling photographers. Same thing with magazines. I would, I would come to Midtown. I would say like when your drop off day, they would say it's a Wednesday. Uh, so I'd go back home and I would get a prepped or I would call for my apartment. And you would just be writing this down like in a little notebook, like Wednesday at this place, Tuesday at this place. Yeah, everything was analog. I didn't think I got my first scion until I was like well into my photography. Right. So, because I mean, it's I, these origin people like saying we all just skip this part a lot of the time. But like, I think uh, because people think it just kind of happened. Like, like you were just there was no encouragement for you. Like you were yeah. assisting these photographers because you loved it. You were learning what not to do and what to do. Like you said, you decided I can't be. An, I can't make my life being an assistant. And then you're coming to Manhattan with quarters and dimes in your pocket and making phone calls to people who are not interested in and saying like, can you look at my portfolio? And you're getting rejections, right? You're collecting yeah. rejections. Yeah, you get it. You, you would get probably 50-50 on the... Uh, on the, you know, approvals and the rejections. And uh, my first... my. Actually, the second time I dropped my portfolio off after the Avenue Magazine disaster for me, I went to For Forbes and I got my first job. I dropped awesome. my portfolio off and they said, "Like, okay, we got a job for you tomorrow." Wow! And, uh, it was it was photographing uh, one of the, I think it was the VP at Porsche, and uh, I photographed him in one of the Porsche dealerships in a great car and we went and I had half an hour with him and I just was like pinching myself like wow this is like this is this is real this is gonna how happen. did you yeah how did you build your portfolio so before that though I mean you took classes you worked in college but when you were building your portfolio the thing you were going to send around did you treat that like a total like were you like okay I, I'm going to be a professional like would you org save your money to organize shoots would you just go around and get yep. strangers like what was your what was your process of okay i'm coming to new york and i am going to distinguish myself as a photographer like what did you do to build that and set yourself up yeah so it's it's, it's pretty strategic at least from my from my yeah. uh, my own personal view it's pretty strategic i would look at magazines that i really wanted to work for i would see what kind of work that they you know that they were like gravitating towards and then I would enlist my friends or interesting people that I had met and I would do a portrait and then I would give them a portrait and I'd build my portfolio around the idea that, hey, if this resembles something that the magazine could be excited about, then maybe they'll give me a job. And when you were doing those things, were you aware 
of having to develop. It's funny that that person said that to you because obviously, although you can do many different things, you do have a central point of view and how you do what you do and why you do what you do. Were you developing yeah. your voice and your point of view consciously or did that kind of happen as you were trying to serve what these jobs needed? Like, you know, the guy is the guy's right in that you you uh, one has to an artist has to find a way to have a point of view in their work, yeah. right? So how did yeah. that start for you or how did you figure that out for yourself? Um, it, it really kind of drove back to what we were talking about before, which was idea first. Yeah. And so, and so when I would get an assignment, um, my first assignment was to photograph, it was for the hot issue. Lynn Hirschberg put that together and, uh, At Rolling Stone, yeah. I can't remember the other editor involved, but I think, uh, Lori Kurtakil was the editor of the photo editor at the time. And it was to photograph an NYU the NYU film school, which was the hot school. So I went and I casted three of the uh, film students. I did this very kind of hyper real photograph of these three people making a movie and they were really in your face. I waited. I, I was, I procrastinated to the very last day I could shoot it. Cause I was so nervous. It was 11 degrees outside. We shot it. I got into my car, I borrowed a friend's car uh, that lives in the same building on 104th Street, uh, Ben Mandel's car. And it was a little, uh, it was a little, uh, uh, what was it? It was like a Toyota something or other. And, it, and I remember loading my equipment in and I had left the front door open while I was putting stuff in the trunk and a bus came and knocked the door off and almost no! killed me. No, yeah. on your first day, I had a... I had a door get blown off a car once by a, a panel van with like glass. Oh my, I've had it happen to me. But no, on the first day when you're about to go do your shoot for Rolling yeah. Stone, your first one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Car Car Lord. I had, to pay, I, had to, I had to fix Ben Mandel's Celica. I think it cost me about $1,500. So the shoot was very expensive. you're shooting this Forbes thing is your approach because your approach now I've been on shoots with you I know how you do what you do you have this incredible ease about you Mark in a professional environment and even if it's tense even if there's a million things going on you find a way to really connect with your subject you let them know that you see them you let them know that you understand you're you're here to understand them uh, you are also able to manage all the bullshit that's happening obviously that's you now as an acknowledged master in the world of this. But I wonder like in the beginning, so you said you were nervous before a shoot or the first assignment that comes in. Yeah, I used to throw up every time. Right, back then. Did you, uh, uh, when you walked into the room, did you kind of discover your way of connecting with subjects then? Meaning how did you get the subject to sort of be within the world where you wanted them in the frame. How did you think all that stuff through? Had you thought it out ahead of time, or well, it's 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 basically the same way when you're directing. I think um, in in film, it's like you're really you're really uh, paying attention to the frame. It's sort of like this sort of dual 
observation. You're observing your subject. You're looking at through the frame. You know, this is before computers, so we're doing everything. In yes, camera. yes. And, I, and you, I always keep one eye kind of on my subject. And then when I look down through the lens, I kind of go back and forth. But I try not to separate them too much from, from my eye line because I want to keep them very, like, engaged. And, uh, and it's almost as if there's nobody else in the room. Like, that's kind of the atmosphere that I try to create. And it's, it's, it's very mutual. It's very collaborative. And even on the simplest portraits, um, when, when you see something that feels like the moment, that's when you really have to push it. And then once that moment's over, it's an inertia. Once that, that moment is over, then pretty much the shoot starts to wind down. But you can really see it happening as you're moving through the process. You're talking to them. You're moving them a little bit. They're, they're very unaware of the of that kind of direction besides you're just giving them kind of key things to do. But then when you finally do this sort of twisted movement and everything's coming together, then it loosens up and then the shoot's over. So it's uh, it, it's a build. But were you aware of that in the beginning? Like when you did that first shoot with the Porsche guy, were you figuring this stuff out kind of on the fly yeah. or did you, because suddenly it's different, you're getting paid. It's not like you and your friends try, audition. You're no longer auditioning for a job, though of course yeah. each job is an audition for the, in that stage of your career is an audition yeah. for the next job. But like, yeah. are there are there editorial people in the room with you on that first job or is it just you and the no. car and the exec? Just, it just, it just my, I had one assistant and then it was the, uh, it was the, this, the, the subject. But, but one thing that really gave me a lot of confidence is that um, my, my uh, instructor who really taught me a lot in my junior year, um, James Newberry, uh, really pushed history of photography on us. And so I studied, uh, you know, a, a wide range of photography and I focused on portraiture through the class. I eventually went into documentary portraiture. So people like Arnold Newman, people like uh, Avedon and Penn and yes. even like Diane Arbus, you know, there was, there was a, a thing about the framing that seemed so innate in the way that they took pictures that that was kind of the way that I would uh, set up. I would find my framing before the subject would come in, create that, and then kind of work myself into seeing if there was another angle that would be better. But usually it was pretty set. And, um, and then it was all about like their involvement. It was their you know, it was like their soul or their personality or their, if we were doing something that was going to have a, a joke to it, then we would really need them to play a role and describing what that role was. I remember the, one of the, uh, probably the third or fourth time I photographed uh, Seinfeld, uh, Jerry calls me on the phone when I'm in, uh, in, in LA and he says, okay, what are we doing tomorrow? And I said, mm, we don't worry about it. We got a bunch of things nice. shows up and we've got Elvis <laughs> costumes from, you know, the gold lame to the like jumpsuits. And uh, he goes, wait, are we doing Elvis? And I said, yeah. And he goes like, Hmm. Okay. Mark. Yeah. Uh, so, 
you also had to you also had to be ready that if the wave you know broke a certain direction that you weren't really uh, sure about, that you had to go for that ride as well. So uh, you know there was a lot of crash and burn involved in that. Yeah, but mostly, I mean, it it went really well. So you you start doing these business things. How did the Rolling Stone thing happen? Meaning the beginning. Uh, you just went and you yeah. as you started to to do this business stuff in the early '80s. You were now changing your portfolio, right? You're adding adding this stuff in. Your that's right. So that was in ni- 1987 when I got my first job at Rolling Stone. It was uh, Jan like January fourth. January 5th and then I did that and then I did another picture for them uh, for the same issue which was the Coen Brothers which wow. was wow which was wow. Not you easy. shot the Coen Brothers in 87 yeah. I've seen pictures that's amazing I know the picture that's amazing yeah yeah, yeah that's amazing yeah I know that movie is one of the reasons I became a filmmaker like one of the key mo- movies was seeing that in that year when yeah. it came out wow Yes. Now, so, would you go so see the movies means, before? Did you see Blood Simple oh, and Raising yeah. Arizona beforehand oh, yeah. to understand yeah. their sensibility? Absolutely. I mean, it didn't really matter because those guys didn't do anything during the photo shoot. They just kind of stare at you. I know. With their faces. <laughs> yes, I know. Like but, I, but I worked it. And the next time I photographed them, I got a really good picture because I think they... They knew me and they trusted me and they had, you know, they and that that, that happens on on repeat with repeat subjects too, is that you get that. So anyway, from 87, uh, I started to, to do a lot more. I started to work with um, two or three different editors and I get a call uh, in the fall to shoot Lady Smith, Black Mombazo, just just that, right. that, that group of, of, of musicians. So I meet them in the West Village at a, um, at a concrete chest table just for people to know that's the group that i just want people to know that's the group that paul simon made graceland uh, a lot of graceland with and all that stuff so you get this assignment and to shoot them so i shoot i so i photographed the guys and then that was on a friday on monday morning i get a call at like nine o'clock from jim franco who's the editor on the piece and jim was really great about championing my work and he said Look, I don't know if it's going to happen, but are you available this afternoon at three o'clock to photograph Paul Simon oh, and Lady Smith Black Marbazo for a cover? And I went, "What?" And he goes, "Yeah." And I said, "I'm available." So this looked like the shoot was going to happen. I rented a studio on Spring Street. I've never done a white background. Remember, that's like kind of tricky. Technically, that's kind of a tricky thing. You know, that's. You got to make sure the light's right. You don't want to get any kind of backlighting, blah, blah, blah. So I figured it out. Actually, Ed Keating was my assistant on that shoot. And uh, Lady Smith Smith Black Mombaza shows up. And I'm talking to the guys. We're getting ready. Phone rings in the studio. Line one for you. Pick it up. And he's like, hey, Mark, it's Paul Simon. I'm in the car. I don't know if I should come or not because I don't know if we're going to have enough time because we're, we're leaving. Everybody's, you know, going to be on airplanes. I said, oh. oh, no, we're great. Come on. Shows up a half an hour later, walks in. I mean, you know, I'm continually pinching myself. 
we start to take pictures and within mm-hmm. like five minutes of me taking pictures, I had a long way to go that, you know, I had an hour, so I had a long way to go to get the cover. They all start singing. So I just had to sit back and take it in, drink it in. And that was like, you know, my first moment to really understand like why, you know, somebody decides to become a musician their whole life is that there's that joy of, you know, being around other people that love playing. So they sang for about 45 minutes, 30 minutes. And then I finished the cover and a couple of pictures of Paul and, uh, and they left. And I remember calling my mom and my dad. I said, like, you are not going to believe what just happened. I just uh, shot my first, uh. first cover of Rolling Stone. And I said, you know what? I know I'm going to regret this, but if I don't ever shoot another cover for Rolling Stone, at least I got one in. And my parents were just, you know, they, my father was like, he was like my biggest champion. He would like drive around in his Impala with like, you know, mag- with, with magazines stuffed in like, you know, storage boxes showing people so it was great it was a great moment and then my next cover was sam kennison and that was less i know but i mean i know both of those i mean it's just amazing mark those are both i want to hear about the sam one but but i want to stay with the lady smith black mamunzo and and paul simon thing because i've been in these moments so they start singing you know there's a clock like, you know, time's running, they're singing, you have this realization, this is why people become musicians. But as you know, dude, there are a lot of opportunities to ruin the vibe in that room if your sense of the pressure yeah. you're under becomes contagious, right? That's right? And because we, I'm saying I've been, I know exactly the, and, and so, do you think you were just built in a way that made it, that you were able to quickly go, okay, that chameleon, okay, I get it. Were you able to lose yourself in what they were doing in a way enough that they felt, okay, this guy's not judging us, he's not worried, where it's chill and cool, like, because inside you, you must, it's your first Rolling Stone cover, you must have been freaking out, part of you. Yeah, I was freaking out. But I also was seeing it through, you know, a fresh lens. And I said, well, you know, this must just be part of the journey. So I better just enjoy it because it's going to be what it's going to be. And I, I really, I like, I sat there and listened to it. It happened a couple of times uh, in memory where uh, it, it really stuck out of my mind. One was with um, George Harrison. Wow. Yeah. He, grabbed a, he grabbed a ukulele and, uh, and sang for us, sang for the, for the crew in 92 he sang a bunch of beautiful hawaiian songs and just to hear a beatles sing was like you know forever embedded in my brain and then um and then elvis costello those singing pictures. singing on um on uh on a piano which was pretty mind-blowing on i mean on you and elvis album. clearly have a great you and Elvis clearly yeah, have I mean, a great connection. I mean, I've yeah, you photo, yeah. your photographs of him are amazing throughout time. Like you Thank really you. get something with him. Wow, it's so almost famous though that moment because it's like 
all right, you want the interview? We'll do it. They never do the interview. And there you are and waiting to be able to take this picture, but they're lost yeah. in their world. Now, when you got it, so I've, I've seen you do the thing now where, where while you're working, because it's digital, you can show the subject, you can get their enthusiasm. You're able to, you know, I think we got something good here. I'm going to make it even better, but here's where we are. But back then you couldn't really do that, right? You're, how did you know? You could. How could you do it back then? Polaroids? Polaroids. And then you'd give them the Polaroid afterwards. You'd say like, here, take, and you know, you sign it for them. And they were like, wow, this is like, you know, getting a, a towel in every box of time. Did you know you had it when you got with Paul and the band? Did you, was there a moment where you were like, okay, that's a cover of Rolling Stone. Like that looks like the cover of Rolling Stone. That's where the, like, did you know, okay, that's where it's going to say Rolling Stone. That's like, you had it suddenly. And is that the one they yeah. chose? Here's, here, here's what they send you before you go on a shoot. They would send you by messenger Rolling Stone acetates. Awesome. So there would be an acetate that you'd put over the cover, which was like the funnest part because you'd put it over and you'd show it to them. And at that time, I mean, when you were on the cover of Rolling Stone, that was like oh yeah, the greatest. Nothing like it, of course. The yeah. biggest, best thing. Was the photo that you thought was like the key one on those first couple? Obviously, later on, you had a voice in it and you knew and you would talk to the photo editors. But like, was the one that you would have selected as your pick? Was that what they picked as the cover? No, I would make, I would, I was just kind of uh, 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 relentless in the way that I would mark up my, my, I was shooting Chrome. So I would send them up, I would send them like, selects and then i would circle it and i would say very 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 best and then i would say best and then i would say seconds but the very 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 best was like circled like 19 times there were stickers all over it i would be you know i would send my you know every time i would send in a little postcard that i would find somewhere on my travels and i would write on the back like you will notice that on my select sheet, I've marked the very, 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 very best. And with, yeah, that's awesome. I could imagine that some photo editors at some places would be highly receptive, but that some egos might not be. But how did that usually go well? Did you usually see it the way they did? You would get a call more often than not of like, hey, we need to see some extras. Thanks for your selection, (laughs) but, and that could mean one of two things that could mean that they really need to see extras or that you had really screwed the sheet up. Right. I'm sure I look for everybody. Yeah, or, do you, like- or do you have any other situations besides uh, the one with, uh, you know, what's his name in a tutu? And you'd That's be like, right. yeah, like maybe. The, 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 also, the, um, the formula for me was always make sure that you walked away with a picture for yourself and then make sure you do a safe one so if you look in the in our archives awesome a lot of the portraits that we come back to after like letting them you know sit back and 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 live a life of their own is that some of the simpler ones that we never even thought about because they were just portraits are absolutely wonderful now that kind of real deconstructed simple moment and so I like going back into the archive and I don't even remember some of them because they were sort of an afterthought. That was well, like that, 
that's so fascinating because while it's true what you said that I've heard you say, you know, you're not thinking about trends, but all of us who make art are aware of what we're floating in at the various times or the wave we're surfing. And so, of course, you'll the concepty one will in some way touch the times that it's in. But the one where you're doing the shot that's just a, a perfect frame uh, that you found and the composition and the mezz it's simple mezzanine and, and it doesn't touch the, the it doesn't touch the mores of the time has a chance yeah. to outlast it and be yeah. revelatory um, of the person in a different way right that's right that's right and those those moments were were really interesting because I would do them on large formats so I would take a four by five and I would set up a very simple portrait uh, in black and white just to have as a backup. I'd use some color too, but it was mainly black and white because I knew that the black and white, if it didn't live in this particular moment, then maybe it would have a chance, you know, for a second life. And um, and so a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at is that kind of like classic portraiture that, that I was so in love with when I was, you know, studying photography. And so, um, yeah, so there was... There oh, so was tell what happened with Kinnison, with the second one. So the first one goes... The yeah. first you, you do the first one and it goes on the yeah. cut like they love it. Right. And they're they're like, we, yeah. we feel smart picking you. Great. Then they call you for Sam Kinison. And, and I yeah. imagine the vibes there were a little different than Paul Simon. And uh, yeah. And that was the first time that I, you know, I, I was in California for a cover. So it's the first cover in California. I've been to California once before for Rolling Stone and I, I was photographing Jane's Addiction for a article on yeah. the East coast versus the West coast. The West coast was Jane's addiction and the East coast was uh, Tommy Conwell and the young rumblers. Wow. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, guess who won? Um, and then Sam Kinison was the, really the first comedian. Uh, I had photographed Stephen Wright for a little article, but then Kinison was like my first kind of big comedian. And he was just, you know, blowing through the roof at that time. So because of his energy and because of his kind of defiance, we we had a, a set builder build shackles for his wrists. And we tested it out where he was like breaking through the shackles. And Kinison loved it. And he was just, he was just great. And then the second day we were up in his house in Malibu, I needed to get a second picture and, uh, and so I had rented a motorcycle that had a passenger seat. And then we hired a couple of, uh, of Kinnison type gals to be riding with him. It was raining all morning. We just barely got out there. And right when we shot our first couple of pictures, Malibu police came by and shut us down. Cause I didn't know you got uh, Oh, sure. So that's how a, green, that's amazing, man. That's how so young I have, you I are. Have a, I have, I have a little autograph book that I had Sam sign. I had a couple of my subjects signed early on. And he says, Mark, enjoyed the shoot. Next time, get a permit. Love Sam Kennison. <laughs> I mean, that's great. And were you, were you loving it? Meaning starting to do it. Were you loving when it was really in the flow? You do the, that shoot, you do the next one. Now it's like kind of this thing you dreamed of, but you're getting to do it. And was it delivering for you what you'd hoped it would emotionally as it was happening? 
Yeah, so we were built. I was building a, a really good relationship with Rolling Stone, and so I believe it was in 1989. Uh, Lori asked me if I would be on Retainer, which basically meant that a lot of the magazines that were competitive with him, which I wasn't doing that much work with, that I would uh, I would give Rolling Stone like first option if a job came through. So there was no. There, there was a little competition, but I was still like kind of their guy in terms of a in terms of having like a um, you know not an agreement, but just more or less like a retainer. And then in 1992, um, after the 25th anniversary, I did a portfolio with a bunch of really amazing photographers: Herb Ritz, uh, Kurt Marcus, who just passed away. Yes, um, uh, Bruce, Matthew Ralston. And uh, there was a couple of other guys. So we were we were all doing these portfolios and mine oh, and Albert Watson, too, uh, who's been a friend for a long time. So I did the portfolio. And right after the, the 25th anniversary came came out, I got called up to the office and uh, and they invited me to come on and be their chief photographer. And that lasted for 10 years. Right. Yeah. And then you shot most every cover. Right. For a long shot, 10 covers. 20 covers a year, I shot 10 covers. I shot half the covers. If I if I went over there, that was fine too. But I mean, I did. I just wanted to work. So, you know, they would say, well, you have to do this much work. And I was like, I'll do more. You know, I just, I want to be working all the time. I want to be shooting for you. I want to be the face of Rolling Stone. Oh, and you, and you, you, yeah, I mean, you, it's so fun. I mean, you're still so connected with that because of these incredible photos. And you've, Paul, I want people to know you've published, uh, there have been a bunch of books published with, with collections of your photography yeah. that people can find. And it's worth going to find them. The, the work is really um, extraordinary Thank and you. really reveals, well, it really reveals stuff. You know, sometimes I'll have, I mean, I have uh, obviously a bunch of friends that you've shot and you get something about the nature of these people that, um, you have to know them for a while or, or that they don't genuinely want to show or they're finally happy to be able to show. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think a lot of my subjects thought I wore them out. You know what I mean? Like he just, he just wore me down until I just like, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I just, I just wanted to get out of there. And, uh, and I, that's how I got the shot. But, you know, I, I, you know, I would really work on people and make sure that, you know, they were as involved in the session as I was. I mean, it was it was very much about a a, a mutual, you know, amount of, of creativity going on. Yeah, I want to ask you this, um, like as different from photographing business leaders, when you're photographing the most important artists of the time, and like you're an artist and you're focused on, doing this thing you're doing how much of a responsibility do you like for instance i know when i had elvis costello on the podcast you know it wasn't i always prepare like you i always know the conversation I, like all the same it's so resonant to me and um i'm always aware and i do my research like i you know i mean i you know i, I got the books i read all the essays like you know, i do all the shit right you know I, you got to do this i just showed mark one of his books like you do the shit but I remember when Elvis was coming on the podcast, it was like, oh, this is, I could talk to Elvis Costello. Like people care about him so much. I can't fucking waste a second of this. And I, I have to, 
find a way to get him to get to the heart of a guy who's been, you know, everyone's tried to get to the heart of Elvis. Like, uh, I feel this obligation, I guess, to the people listening to try and connect in a way that is going to reveal something in the nature of one of the great artists of our time. That's right. And I, I just That's wonder what you felt about that. Cause you're like how you processed that in terms of thinking of, of what you wanted to, to, to do with them. You, you know what I mean? Like, right. I, well, yeah. So that's a great question, Brian. What, what I do is I psychologically, you know, build up this idea that this is going to be the last time, whether I photograph them before, this is the last time I'm going to, I'm going to photograph them. And if I don't, you know, I'm an applied artist, right? Like I work for people. Yes. I do my own work too, but I am, you know, that's one side of me, I'm, but I'm an applied artist. So my, my obligation is to myself, to create the best work possible for myself, to, um, to support the artists the way that they, you know, with integrity and, and respect the way that they need to be uh, dealt with. And then to, you know, obviously connect with the magazine or the book or the whatever the project might be so that I'm giving them something that, you know, they can, they can really bite into and, um, and, and, and kind of clearly understanding that I want to take a photograph that has never been done before or that I have never taken before. I build it almost on a first approach. And let, right. So this might be the last chance I have and I want it to feel like it's the first time this thing has ever happened right. before. And you right. steep yourself in their work, right? Like you were saying, like when you are photographing Nirvana or whichever one of those, you know, um, um, artists, you're steeping yourself in their work. And are you also trying to understand the way the culture sees them so that you can either lean in or play against it or... I mean, are you aware of how they fit in the culture or are you divorcing yourself from that and only trying to see them how you see them? Well, it, it really has nothing to do with, the, with any kind of outside in, uh, interference. For instance, um, one of the artists that I really, you know, kind of stepped into when working with her was Fiona Apple. Yes. Uh, on one of her kind of earlier probably I think her first cover for Rolling Stone, maybe her second cover was Rolling Stone. So I would listen to her lyrics. And there's this one lyric in, I can't remember what the song was, but she's talking about being under the waves. And it's very, it's, it's a very surreal kind of story that she's telling. So it was almost like an Ophelia type of an idea. And so we built a tank that she could lay in and she had this beautiful long hair. And so she was laying in the water and her hair was moving. It was almost like, you know, it was almost like it wasn't a photograph. It was more kind of painterly. And I wanted to get across like the poetry of who she is um, without it feeling like just a portrait. So a lot of it, same with when I worked with Neil Young, I would think about yes. what is, what is the desert? What does the desert look like? What is, what is that feeling when you're, you know, packing up after shooting the desert and what is the, what is the momentum of that landscape? And so when I was, I was shooting Neil, who I was, you know, was his biggest fan and somebody that I'd always 
you know, respected of in course. the hotel photograph. We set up on a, just a simple background. We set up a kind of a big mole fan. And I said, like, do you mind if I just blow your hair from behind so that it's blowing around your your face on this profile? And he was like, no, go for it. You know, he was uh, like, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, and so we we did that shot. And I remember like, wow, you know, the the simplest little idea can really translate to the way that of what you're hearing. And, and that kind of made me uh, start to bend into the idea of listening more, like listening to what they were saying, listening to the way an environment feels like, what is that tactile experience when you're, when you're feeling something and how does that resonate with a, a photograph, something that is you know one dimensional, but it has the ability to tell a story. All right, last thing, and then I'll, uh, I'll I'll let you go. But it's related to this, and I think it'll be useful for people. Like, um, I remember the first time I had to direct um, Michael Douglas. I remember, mm -hmm. like, we we had you know a, a, a few days where where it was all just great. You know, um, uh, he was so locked in, and, but but then like I don't know whatever it was day two or three. There was this, uh, you know, this scene just wasn't working exactly the way, like it just was. But I, and I had to like find a way to go give Michael Douglas a note. And he was the most welcoming dude, right? You know, that's the thing. But in my own head, it was so difficult walking across the floor to have to give him a note um, the first time. What is your way of learning? How do you, like when you have Bob, you know, if you have Bob or Bruce, Patty Smith, Aretha, whatever, how... A legend, a titan, someone whose work has changed you. Like, that's the thing, right? Michael Douglas was so important to me as an artist. How, how did you learn to talk to those people and be able to ask them for what you, you want without being intimidated by their greatness? So part of, the, part of the journey for me was through the process of coming up with ideas or coming up with, you know, what the photograph was going to look like or the serious photograph was going to look like is I sketch it out and then I'll, and then I'll um, either do a test preemptively to show them what it could possibly look like in my studio. So like a pre-light, but with, without them, obviously show them the sample of it. And I do, I do that a lot and I've done that a lot. Uh, and then um, swipe to say, okay, this isn't exactly it, but this is kind of the feeling. But as you build your own library of imagery, you can really count on showing them things that you've done rather than what other people have done. So there's a confidence when they see how you pulled it off with somebody else, even though it's not exactly the same, you know, concept or trick or lighting pattern. They're going like, oh, yeah, I mean, I can look that good or I can be that cool or I can play this but e even even the but even just showing them a sketch of what you're planning what's brilliant about that and the Cone brothers do this too but what's brilliant about that is you're you're inviting them to comment first in a way which begins a creative conversation where they might say well oh that's and now you're kind of in it because you've shown them something they can react to 
And that starts right. the creative dialogue as opposed to you going to them yeah. and saying, I want this or do this. It's like, I was thinking this, how does this hit you? And it, it opens the thing up in a beautiful way, it seems, right? I remember one time I was, I was trying to explain an idea to Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. Yes. And I said, I, I want to do a shot of your eye makeup running down your face. Just a simple portrait. We had already done a couple. And she said, um, I, no, I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. And I said, what would you like to do? And she explained what she wants, wanted to do. And we did that picture. And then at the very end of the session, she said, all right, let's try your idea. Awesome. So, so the, you know, you can only hit so hard. You can only push so hard. And I would say 50% of the time they come back at the end, appreciating that, you, you know, you're not, you're not putting it solely on them and they come back and they go, okay, let's try your idea. So. Cause you're willing you're willing to move. Yeah, you're 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 listening and you're riding the wave with them, and it's a it's a collaborative experience. They're the subject. You're trying to do the best job possible, and you want them to be involved. You want that expression. You want that that you know connection with them. But you still can come back at the end and have that dialogue. And once that trust is there, because it really is trust, then maybe you can go. You can get there. Awesome. Mark, what's your latest book? What's the newest book that people can order? Uh, well, we just put out over the, uh, right after the pandemic, we put out The City That Finally Sleeps. Yes. And that is only sold on our website. There's only a couple hundred copies left, I, I can happily say. But we, you know, I went out with uh, my, my, uh, my first assistant, Davis, who was very uh, willing to come into the studio. And we photographed all over the city without any you know, human life attached to it. And that was up to when George Floyd was killed. And obviously that was when the city woke up. Well, I, people should go look at that book. And uh, there's an early book that I got to look at of uh, Holocaust that's related to the, the Holocaust and yeah. relatives of survivors and survivors. And, and it's, I think people should find that too. It's different, um, yeah, that's but called, really that, Yeah, that's that, that's called uh, uh, When They Came to Take My Father. And the other one that we have that I really am proud of is a book on Christopher Street, which is documenting transgender. So go and check all that stuff out. Mark Seliger, thanks so much for doing this, man. It's great to see thanks, you. And uh, I hope I'll see you soon uh, on a shoot for one of the shows. Thanks, buddy. Thanks.